Hello, Tamsin here. It's lovely to be with you in podcast world. We weren't able to record this on Sunday, so I will record it today. Doing my best at my first recording, so be kind, be gracious. Um, We are in a small little series on wisdom in the lead up to Lent, and we're sort of um, pandering this idea that um, wisdom is a path or a way of navigating our faith. Um, and what does that actually mean um, is what we've been thinking about. Uh, we've kind of come to this thought of wisdom as something that is alive in the stories of our ancient past in Scripture, and so we hold that in the midst of our community with all our various opinions and relationship with it, but we still hold it as something important in our midst. And that also wisdom is something alive in our communal experience that in our sharing and somewhere in the midst of us as a gathered community of people or a church, we hold wisdom in the collective. And then there's something alive in our personal experience, the living witness of the divine that we encounter in all forms of our life and moments. Um, So there's wisdom recorded, wisdom shared, and then wisdom encountered. And that wisdom functions on all of these levels and has many facets. Um, One of those is that in the Hebrew Bible, we see this tradition called the wisdom tradition and wisdom literature, which is this category that holds what does it mean to be wise? What does it mean to make wise decisions um, with all our choices that we hold in life? Um, And this kind of generally is accepted to hold Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Job. Sometimes Song of Songs is included or some Psalms as well. Um, But we are just going to go with Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Job. Last week, Shane gave a really beautiful overview of Proverbs. Um, So if you get a chance to listen, I would encourage you to do so. But it acts like a foundation text on how to make good choices, offered up as sayings, advice, or any images that offer two contrasting pictures that prompt you to choose the better, as it would in turn result in having a better life. Um, You get the sense that right living is rewarded by God in the form of blessing or happiness or health or um, not always spelled out in such clarity, but you would assume from living, reading Proverbs that life is enhanced by following right decisions and life is enhanced by following my religion so I engage so that my life might be better. Um, and it has a little bit of a, um, a sense that it doesn't hold a lot of, it's not trying to grapple with all of the other experiences of life. It sort of is quite happy with uh, an optimistic tone or hopeful tone. Um, or, and you get perhaps at the start of life idea that we need an optimistic and hopeful tone in our formation. Richard Raw is a Franciscan priest and writer um, and we would consider quite a wise person that we hold in our community and he would call this the first half of life truth. Um, this optimistic container that helps form and orientate our lives as young people. We need something solid in order to grow from and that orientates us. And, yeah, Proverbs seems to live in that category of wisdom literature that's part of that orientating one to not promises in life but things that are most often true, that you seek good things and good things tend to happen as a result of those things. 
um, this first half of life truth would be my world at the moment. I have a two-year-old and much of my life is trying to find sort of this container, an optimistic container for her in which to view the world and the things we talk about and um, draw or are centred around, you know, hopeful things. We don't tend to think about death or disappointment. That's not so much in my two-year-old vocab at the moment. Um, but it's, yeah, that kind of wisdom kicks in of how do I be a wise parent in helping her understand the world that's going to be ever more and more complex but at the start, it's not, we don't have to hold everything. Um, and we get that sense of first half of life truth, um, which is easier to see with small children. But then we get to sort of this second set of books as the wisdom literature of Ecclesiastes and Job. And, and that seems a little less um, optimistic. It has uh, a flavour of, you know, there's a harsh reality to the world and how do we form an understanding of everything in light of that harsh reality. Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar and writer and he has this notion of biblical counter-testimony that includes texts that portray divine hiddenness, ambiguity, the unreliability of God, distressful negative experiences of Israel's God. These are texts that seem to call out God's infidelity rather than God's fidelity. And he would say they are all through the Hebrew Bible and they were protected and kept in as very important parts of formation of young Israelite. If just there is a lot to being a young Israelite in the world, um, and they're not for the faint-hearted, uh, but they but they can hold the experiences of disillusionment. Um, and he would say it's just reflective of a more real relationship with a real God. Um, if you can only speak about positive things about someone and you have no freedom to speak about anything else or any other observations, it's not in fact freedom or it cannot even be love because you don't have the freedom of the opposite. You are just sort of limited and um, constricted and constrained and love doesn't work in that context. So he would, Walter Brueggemann would say, Biblical counter-testimony is just essential in order to have a robust relationship with a real God is we need to be able to talk about when things don't seem to work the way we thought they were going to work and hold God accountable. If God can hold that, which we'd hope God could, God hopefully will come back in a very different way, perhaps in a bigger way that can hold more under the more under the sun, you know, this a bigger sense of, of life in the world. Um, so Ecclesiastes seems to be the story of someone disillusioned about the story of their faith. It's got a slightly resigned tone to it. Um, we get a, an account of someone disturbed by what they see happening under the sun or just in the world. Um, they were sold something and... Now they've had enough life and seen life is not hasn't quite turned out the way I assumed or expected it would, um, and doesn't get angry at God, but you get a sense of just being miffed at the whole situation. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project says sort of comments that Ecclesiastes challenges the myth of religious fulfilment um, that God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. Ecclesiastes looks that right in the eye and says, God doesn't seem to reward the righteous or punish the wicked. 
sometimes the exact opposite happens. And so what do we do with God then? Um, what a wonderful book. What a wonderful book. Um, so as far as the book itself, there are many different ways we can interpret it. There is hot debate over different sort of the narrator and who wrote it and when and how. Um, but we'll just sort of take a simple view of it this week um, and that there seems to be a narrator of the book who introduces us to the main speaker and in the Hebrew you would have this word kohelet which would be preacher to an assembly or a speaker to an assembly. Um, the Message Bible says quester, someone who quests. Um, so Kohelet gets the main chunk of the book um, and as if he's been given a microphone and at the very end the narrator comes back on for the final conclusion or the epilogue and quietly has a lot to say in in a short epilogue that's yeah we'll come to a bit later because it's a really interesting last part of um, the book um, so surprise twist ending just forces you to read it we are going to do that right now. We're just going to read Ecclesiastes 1 just to get a taste of the style um, of, of the book. Um, you're more than welcome to read this at home. Um, but Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 4. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanity. All is vanity. What do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In verse 8, all things are wearisome, more than one can express. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. The people of long ago are not remembered, nor there will be any remembrance of people yet to come by those who come after them. Sets for a, a fairly happy tone um, right off the cuff. And this term vanity of vanities, uh, each translation kind of comes up with a different word you might have heard of. Meaningless of meaningless, um, futility of futility. The message uses the word smoke of smoke. Um, and it's sort of you get the sense of things not hot, not being able to to hold much it's it's all a bit futile um the literal translation is a bit closer to the term smoke or vapor which is a poetic image used kind of and a poetic image can hold many different angles um but if you think of a vapor it's short-lived it's here one moment and then gone the next um but also as a poetic image it carries the idea of something futile or it's an enigma a paradox it's impossible to comprehend or fully grasp. Kohelet uses this word 38 times through the book and there's this emotional energy behind and exacerbation behind this word of vapour of vapour, everything is vapour. Um, and it kind of this week, um, I don't know when you're going to be listening to this, but um, it's coincided with uh, the earthquake through Turkey and through um, Syria and there's an image that's circulating of a, um, a collapsed building and there's a father sitting um, in a jacket just on a chair and he's holding a hand that's coming out of that, that rubble. And um, 
there's it's the hand of his, his daughter who has passed away and under the collapse and he's just sort of sitting there holding it um, and it's such a striking and horrific and sad and moving image um, but it sort of captured my mind because I was thinking about Ecclesiastes and this term vapour and it seems to kind of hold that of like when we're struck by something that often around death where something doesn't make sense in that moment this is not how it should have been this is not how things should have turned out and vapour or smoke or meaningless or futile this is ridiculous this is futile this this makes no sense um, I think it's a good word for life on earth because we have these moments we if we live long enough we have these moments they they hit us and they we don't have words and it doesn't make sense and it how a good God can let that happen um, in a good world doesn't make any sense and so that's yeah in Ecclesiastes we get this term Vanity, it's all vanity. What do we gain from all the toil under the sun? Things come and things go. Um, this, is, this is a very difficult system to get your head around. Um, it's very jarring in a sense. And I like that we have a record of this, um, this feeling of things not making sense and it's in our sacred texts that are right in the centre of our Hebrew Bible. Um, so we, a, sort of a short overview, I guess, of some of the arguments of the book, and this is connected to Pete Enns, um, has a podcast called The Bible for Normal People, has done lots of research on Ecclesiastes, and he would say that the first point that Kohelet makes is there's no profit in anything that you do. Um, why do people gain for all their toil or hard work? He seems pretty miffed by that. Um, why... Do you work so hard? Um, nothing changes in the cycles of the earth. Um, everything is futile. Um, there is nothing new happening under the sun. We are doing the same things again and again. And this really bothers Kohelet. We also get this idea of death is the great leveller of humanity. Nothing matters because um, death will come for us all. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're the king or if you you know, have great wealth or have, if death will come and it, it's going to, to level out your life. Um, Kohelet finds that rough, you know, this is can't take anything with you. There is nothing to gain. You will die. Um, so you can see this is not why I teach my daughter this book. It's... It's it's true, you know. This is actually true. We are all going to die. I don't. Depends on how much time you want to think about it. But um, this will come. And why why bother if you know what are we doing? Um, given that that is our outcome, um, Kohelet also sort of changes tone at some points and just says, "Don't try and figure it all out like me." Just go with the flow. Um, they have these tips that are sometimes called the carpe diem passages or seize the day or nothing better than passages where um, you get, you know, eat, drink and be merry comes from that of it's really rough. You know, life on earth is rough so it doesn't make sense. You're going to die. Your hard work doesn't make sense so why don't you eat, drink and be merry? Um, yeah, even a, a 
Pete Ends would just say it's kind of got that also carries the tone of resignation that it's not, woohoo, this is kind of well given the scenario that seems a bit hard to process. We this is what we can do with the small amount of control that we have. Ecclesiastes 8.14 says, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, and there are righteous people who are treated according to the conduct of the wicked, and wicked people who are treated to according to the conduct of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So I commend enjoyment, for where there is nothing better for people under the sun than to eat and drink and enjoy themselves, for this will go with them in their toil through their days of life that God has given them under the sun. Here's the best that we have. Find some something of happiness with what you've got. That's the gift that God gives you. Um, and, yeah, you kind of perhaps could read under the surface that Kohelet is not happy with this. Um, this situation is from the hand of God and how God has set up the universe. And so we do what we can with what we have, which is this. Um, but he also says, don't don't be a fool like I am and think too much about it, which I can appreciate. Also, as someone who perhaps overthinks a lot of the time. So we might kind of summarise that of Kohelet has a has an issue with how the universe has been set up and, and doesn't express straight up anger at God, but just the system so restrictive and restraining and seemingly unjust, what's what's someone to do other than turn to the drink or turn to um, whatever they can to make themselves feel better. Um, and then at the end we get this really interesting flip with the narrator coming in for the epilogue. Um, so Kehelet has summed up everything that we die, do the best that you can given the scenario that we're in. And the narrator comes in with an argument not contrasting to the preacher and negating everything that Kohelet has said and doesn't try and sort of nervously reframe it in, in the positive um, or rescue the preacher from the kind of stunned audience reaction. Um, he simply sort of summarises the preacher had clear words and used goads, which were like these sticks that shepherds would use to poke sheep or cows in the right direction. His words were there to provoke you into thinking or responding um, and that perhaps links to the prophetic role that wisdom tradition holds of it is difficult to hear, it can be hard to hear this particular perspective on the world but it's there to prompt us into thinking or creating a bigger perspective or a new perspective. Um, so the narrator comes in and um, changes gears the sayings of the wise are like goads, and the nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. Of anything beyond these, my child, beware. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is the weariness of the flesh. The end of, of the matter. All has been heard now. Fear God and keep Yahweh's commandments, for that is the whole duty of everyone. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing whether good or evil. So Kohelet seems, sorry, the narrator at this point seems to be summarising a new sort of, no more talking, go back to what you know to be true, fear God and keep Yahweh's commandments, 
This is what it means to be an Israelite. This is what you know to be the basic fundamentals. This questioning, this existential angst can't go much further. So stay connected to being an Israelite. Maintain deep reverence for God and keep moving. Um, remain faithful. We, yeah, you can see how the last sort of this summary kind of shifts the gear of, well, at least keep moving somewhere. Don't get stuck in this argument. Um, and, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that there's just space in Ecclesiastic for genuine argument, for pushing the limits of God. Um, there's this quote from Walter Brueggemann again. He said, churches should be the most honest places in town and not the happiest place in town. Churches should be the most honest place in town and not the happiest place in town. And I love that. I um, I don't actually love that because I have a personality and temperament that particularly loves a, a fairly happy place. So, um, But I think on a deeper level I, I want an honest place um, that I can, I can get angry at God or just at the way life is in the world that I find it. Um, things don't seem to death happens injustice happens deep injustice happens people are not held to account um, my body breaks down or so many things can just not be in my experience of life um, that I perhaps thought it might be um, yeah and that a church should be a place that could hold that um, and I, it also kind of, I guess, for for the narrator, um, we get a sense that all is said and done is keep fear God and keep Yahweh's commandments. And for us, I don't know what that, in the end of the day, what does that mean? Put pants on, get out of the house, have a coffee. Um, but at the end of the day, come back to know what you know of God. Perhaps all it is is God is love, that you are loved, others are deserving of love. Um, it is a big and broad space under the, in grace. I, I don't know what you're, what you come back to, um, but there's something more um, that we can return to that as far as we can traverse our insight into who God is, we can never fully traverse it. Um, you can try, you're welcome to. Um, and I guess also this idea of shalom, um, the preacher in Ecclesiastes can't seem to find shalom or all-encompassing peace. Um, so it sort of settles for, for the shalom of eat, drink and being joyful. Um, it depends on which angle you take that, but um, it's sort of that question we ask ourselves of where we find shalom or wholeness or the deep, true moments um, And that's our quest. You know, we are also questers that we, uh, you know, raise our voices and challenge things in our views of God for when they they may be insufficient. We may move past them. Um, something might be ruptured in order for something else to take birth. And in the hope, our sense of God grows truer and truer and more inclusive and more loving as we step by step in our, our spiritual path. Um, yeah, I think that's where we'll finish it up today. Um, 
in this first my first delightful online recording um I wrote this benediction which I'll finish with um it's a prayer that we said over the community and um yeah I pray that you go in peace um to a very large and spacious experience of God but this benediction is called God of Meaning um in response to perhaps a a life that seems meaningless sometimes um, and that image, that photo of the father holding the hand of his daughter who was under the rubble. We quieten our busy mind and turn, turn to the meaningful moments where something breaks in and breaks us, to the truth-soaked cracks in the day that wake us up to the real in front of us. When we touch a hand and it is not vapour, but made of loved human, to those meaningful moments that overwhelm by purpose. Come true shalom, break in and break us for the deeply real where love may be found. Amen and amen. Thanks. <laughs>